Welcome to the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WZWA Network. I'm your host with the most on the West Coast, California and Fury. What a joy, what an honor, what a privilege to be with you all once again. And once again, speaking of a joy, honor and privilege right here, right now, I have the chance to talk to a guy who I've been wanting to talk to for so long. Ladies and gentlemen, this guy right here, right now, he's the epitome of style with a smile. The world's greatest hype man, GQ Money, and that's the man from NXT that wore many hats. This is the one. This is the only Mr. Ryan Katz. How are you, sir? Oh, my goodness. I'm doing amazing. I'm doing even better after that intro. I, I feel like I feel like I'm looking back or listening back to an old me. I mean, wow, man, that was incredible. Smooth, man. Unbelievable. That was great. Thank you, bro. Well, I mean, I, I saw uh, you introduce uh, your good friend Road Dog on episode <laughs> one of the podcast, and he was so impressed with the intro. I was like, I've got to, I've got to try and do my best to to match Mr. Ryan Katz. But it's so nice to talk to you. You exceeded, man. You exceeded. That was <laughs> tremendous. It's nice to talk to you as well. Thank you, bro. Um, bro, look, every time I have someone on the show, it's the same question that starts the show usually, unless there's somebody whose father was a wrestler, then I kind of bypass this because they're forced to kind of becoming a wrestling fan. But the first question is always, how did you become a fan of pro wrestling before you got into business? My mom watched professional wrestling. So I got into it when I was just... I mean, my memory is three years old, four years old, whatever, whatever the year was at that point, but just being a little child. And I just remember waking up on the weekends and, and jumping into my mom's bed and, and, and watching wrestling with her. And it was the road warriors for me that got me hooked. I mean, to, to, to see the spikes, to see the face paint, to see precious Paul Ellering lead them to the ring and the, and the, and the guitar strings of, of, of Iron Man, I, I was hooked from childhood on and my dad hated wrestling but it was my mom and when it came to going to live events and going to see WWF at the Rosemont Horizon it was my mom who took me and my friends and I mean yeah it was just something that we built up and built the connection with and I and I was just a childhood fan from the beginning <laughs> awesome, bro. And it's so prevalent on the show that I've I've done nearly 125 interviews at this stage. And everyone pretty much, except for like CW Anderson, who he he didn't like <laughs> he didn't like wrestling at all. Uh, but most of the time, someone got bit by the bug and then the, the bug, you know, the, the bite it oozed into the veins and they never looked back. Uh time wears on from being a young man. It's still in your system. It has to be in your system. How did you find your way to get into the business when you decided, okay, I've got to get into this thing? Yeah, it never went away. And, and I think my parents always thought it would be a phase in my life. 
And, and I think one of the ways that they thought they'd transition me out of being a pro wrestling fan was to turn me on to the amateur sport of wrestling. And maybe, you know, especially back in, in this would be late eighties to early nineties at this point, you know, amateur wrestlers didn't see and look upon pro wrestling as credible. And there wasn't the respect level that there is today where amateurs go on and have these great careers and understand what it is that professional wrestlers do. So, so back then I think my, my parents turned me on to amateur wrestling and, and, and I, and that gave me the bug too. And I got into it at a high level and was a two-time captain of my high school team and was a regional champion in Illinois. And, but, but I never stopped liking pro wrestling and, and me and my buddy, Brian Paul, the other co-captain, my junior year, uh, my best friend at the time, we used to bring like all the pro wrestling moves to practice. And my coach would hate it, hate <laughs> it. Like he'd be wrapping me up into like a tiger bomb power bomb or going for Rana's and stuff. And that's, not that's not wrestling get that out of here and, and like we get yelled at i remember my senior year i like painted like a skull and crossbones on my knee pad and like i'd and like we <laughs> my the junior year we went for our pre-show warm-up we we wanted to come out like with an entrance our whole team so we led the team with like this skull on a stick and we all came out like in a march and it was this aggressive thing into our calisthenics and we came back after that meet and our coach just reamed us it was like never again it won't happen like and it was just they couldn't pull it out of a like and i remember going to college and 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 i mean wrestling in the backyard at that point and now i didn't do the violent deathmatch stuff in the backyard but like my senior year in college at the university of colorado the house that me and my roommates were renting happened to have like six or seven mattresses being stored in the garage and we and we had a big backyard and a deck so we brought the mattresses out we used to have matches and do crazy fun stuff and 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 it, it just kept it going so then that same time senior year and then when I graduated I had already been working with my college radio station for a long time so at that point I started a pro wrestling talk show or so it was actually what I called a pro wrestling soap opera uh it was more of a dramatic rendition of a radio show where there was kind of like scripted television or scripted radio uh episodes with like the drama between the office and me and then there were like audio style fights and 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 then we would also break into headline news and talk real wrestling or break into interviews with other wrestlers. Uh, and at one point when flipping through one of the entertainment newspapers uh, out in Colorado, I saw an ad for two guys that were training pro wrestlers. And I was like, whoa, this, this seems right up my alley. Called them up and got them in as guests on my show. And uh, their name was Dan Magnus and Bobby Black. And Bobby was trained by Steve Kern. And Dan Magnus was a world champion kickboxer. And they were essentially doing evaluations and tryouts. And if people wanted to, you know, had the bug and wanted to pursue it, they would then tell them, hey, go, go to Steve Kern's school in Florida and like that. So I had him on my show. And this was also the emergence of, of web technology. So this is about early 19 or late 1998. Uh, and, and this is as work, uh, I'm, I'm into the technology at this point. And so I'm bringing a webcam into the mix. And this is the start of bringing webcams onto the internet. And we do a bit where I piss them off and they beat me up on air. And in the bit, uh, they ended up swearing on the air and I got kicked off the radio station because I had already been on probation for an issue with what they called uh, bootlegging a Roots concert, which I wasn't doing. We were doing <laughs> actual news coverage and the station should have 
had my back on that because there was nothing, uh, you know, shady being done with it. It would have only been brought back to the show for a 20 second clip to talk about being there. Blah, 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 blah. I end up getting kicked off the air. So those two guys, Bobby and Dan, felt really bad. And they started realizing that I had a gift of gab and I had some skills that maybe they can utilize as well. And they and they pitched the idea of maybe we create our own thing in Denver. So we ended up starting our own thing. And instead of them just sending people off, we started a wrestling school and the wrestling school spawned the CWO central wrestling organization, which for about a year and a half in Denver became huge. We were covered by every local news entity, all the newspapers. I, as a like young promoter was on a PBS discussion. Like, like, I don't know if you have PBS out there, but public broadcasting uh, to sit and discuss being a young promoter in the city, really cool opportunities. Uh, and, and it was, that was essentially my break. Right. Excellent stuff. And this was a question I was going to ask later on, but you brought it up, uh, having the gift of the gab, where did this come from? How do you have it? Is this a natural thing? Where did this come from? So I've always been a class clown, entertainer, performer, whatever it is you may want to call it. And I've always also been into hip hop music. I think it was fourth grade. My friend Dave Abrams turned me on to Beat Street, Crush Groove, uh, Run DMC, Curtis Blow, all the, all the breaking movie, you know, breakdancing movies, all of the like the, the hip hop artists. And I was hooked from day one. So I would say by sixth grade, I started writing raps. And by seventh and eighth grade, I was trying to, to, to build up a skill to freestyle. And, and, and that would keep going on through my high school years. And in college, I was a performer. I was working on the radio, but I was also rapping and writing rhymes and performing and you know, in many small little concerts. And I, and I think for me, being an MC, being a hip hop MC and being able to rhyme on the spot and, and think in my head before, you know, before I say what I'm going to say, or it, I may not even think it just comes out and, and has that kind of flow. I, I think that's what it's all about. For me, it was just always rapping and, and, and trying to just be quick on my, on my feet. As you can tell as I'm getting older, I'm, I'm losing it a little bit. I'm stuttering a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well no i think you're doing a fantastic job bro and uh, uh i totally understand that point of view uh you know thinking so quick uh by you know i'm, I'm not i'm gonna say i'm a, an aficionado as a, as a rap fan but i do like rap but i could totally see how um the thought process would help you you got 60 seconds to say something right fucking now do it okay boom that would definitely it, help it, practice makes perfect or almost perfect. Absolutely. And then the other thing is, is being comfortable being uncomfortable. So while I look like, you know, and I absolutely love what I do, I always have nerves running through me. Like I may put off a, 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 a image that, that I, that I exude confidence. And as a performer, it's something I've always hoped to put forth is that I seem confident and seem larger than life. But the truth is, is obviously I, I, I have anxieties. I have insecurities and I utilize my performance skills to help me as a person grow and overcome and break out of those shells. Cause once again, when people see me in these situations, when I'm talking about my profession. And when I'm talking about what I love, I open up and I'm so outward and, I, and, and I'm this extroverted personality. But in my day to day life, 
I kind of shell up and I kind of go into myself and I'm this introverted shy personality and I'm and I'm a combination of both obvious and both are the authentic to, to, to me, but there is this weird balance of utilizing one side of my personality to balance the other side of my personality and be able to turn on and turn off the switch and go into what would be my calm, relaxed self in my performance <laughs> self, which is definitely 160 miles per hour and fully up and, and, and amped up, you know, pedal to the metal. <laughs> Absolutely, bro. I, 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 I see where you're coming from because uh, when I was younger, I had crippling social anxiety. I'm very shy, um, but I put myself in situations that I should not have put myself into. I forced myself to do stand up comedy. I was pretty good, but uh, the fear and stand up's so brutal, man. It's stand up's brutal. It's so hard. Yeah, I, I, I had the opportunity to tour doing some stand up shows in my life. And, and luckily, the show gave me a very focused audience and subject matter that made it easier. But to be a comic and do general comedy about, you know, about anything and be able to and to be able to go do a set in any city or any country or any place, town, suburb, whatever it is, every audience reacts different. And you could have a set that kills in this town and just <laughs> bombs in another town <laughs> so interesting um I, I hate to skip too far forward but i wanted to get to some xpw stuff because i really love hearing about uh anyone's time in xpw i've had a few guys on the show but uh rob black uh first meeting him getting involved with the company uh, i'm sure that you know there's a there's a stretch of time here that i've missed out on uh to talk about in order for you to get to this moment but how did this come about the first meeting was interesting because I was setting up a trip. I knew my time in Colorado was coming to an end and my company was, you know, as big as it was going to get and probably was going to end up dwindling off from the heights that we created. So it was time to, to move forward in my career and find what was next. And that was likely XPW. At that point, they were the biggest of the small time, I would say. Like they were extreme. They had a reputation, but they were also covered in all the magazines. They, they were putting out big ads and getting featured stories in wow magazine which was a featured uh periodical at the time that's no longer out uh they were getting uh, th th their dvds or their or their vhs tapes were being sold in stores all across the world with distribution so they had something to them so i set up a trip from colorado to go meet with them and upw who was wwe's developmental at the time and on my way there i drove and my car broke down in utah and, and it was this situation where I ended up having to, to sit with the tow truck driver, take an hour and 40 minute tow, uh, have them go work on my car. I then had to buy a plane ticket to get myself to California and, and go through this whole thing. Like this just chaos trip to make it happen. I met with uh, UPW first. I met with XPW first and I went to their offices and I didn't meet Rob at the time. I just met Kevin Kleinrock and he invited me to go to their metal fest show in San Bernardino, which was about an hour and a half hour, 45 minutes away the next day. And so like, he, or two days or whatever it was. And, and he'd get me tickets and set me up to go there. And then we can talk after, but there was interest in me and we'd see where it went. So then the next day I met with UPW and we had a lunch. And at that point for UPW, they were more interested in me only uh, in the behind the scenes aspect of production. Uh, as a WWE developmental, they, they definitely wanted the cookie cutter, big, strong, muscular person that they were pursuing as a wrestler. And at that point, I'm 5'4", 145 pounds probably back then. 
Uh, so they're talking to me about behind the scenes and, it, and they wanted me to work essentially like a 40 hour full time job internship kind of situation for no money. And that wasn't something I was going to be able to do to go relocate my life and make that happen. Uh, so the next day, me and my buddy go down to San Bernardino to check out this Metal Fest show and they don't have tickets waiting for us at the door. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And all of us, and we can't get in. And, and, and my friend brought all that. Like, it was this whole situation. In the end, we didn't end up getting in. And I was like, these guys suck. They're unprofessional. Everything that's written about them is true. Blah, 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 blah. I go back to California thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. My, maybe I don't have a future in wrestling in front of me. Maybe I'm going to move back to Chicago with my parents and, and, and figure <laughs> out what my life's going to become. Uh, January, December, whatever it is, moving into, I think it's moved 2000. And... It's probably 2001 at that point, actually. My I, timeline's rough for me. I'm on the ski slopes, and my buddy, the giant, says to me, Why don't we just go to California and go work for XPW? And I'm like, F it, let's do it. So, giant's seven foot one, 450 pounds. XPW had known of him, like, the, through. Here, here's a little secret if you're a small guy trying to break into wrestling and you're a mouthpiece, you're a manager, you're something like that have a big guy with you when you present yourself to the bigger companies. And it's amazing how many more doors open up for you. If you just have that stereotypical prototypical six foot five plus muscular, or just, I mean, in this case, giant wasn't muscular. He was just monstrous, but like have a big guy with you. It helps get you opportunities. So myself giant and, and, and his buddy TJ rush, we ended up making the trip. We said we went for it. So we moved to California and I still didn't know what I was going to do with my life because I didn't have a job. But this is when I start meeting Rob and Kevin. You know, I met Kevin, but this is where I start meeting Rob and and get a first impression. And he's over the top and he's got his dreads and he walks <laughs> on platform shoes that are this big. I mean, he, he is just a walking, breathing cartoon character and entertaining is an understatement from an outsider looking in. And, and, and he, and he's yelling at people and he's cursing at people, but I'm looking at this as a 22 or 23 year old or whatever I am. And I was entertained and, and thinking this is just outrageous and like, and like nothing I've ever seen before. So in the end, Kevin presents me with an idea that they have two openings available for, for jobs and, and extreme XPW is owned by extreme associates an adult company. So they're like, we have two openings. We have a receptionist position for extreme associates and a warehouse position to go stock the shelves in the warehouse. And Rob and Kevin are expecting me as the mouthpiece to take the receptionist position and giant as the big man to take the <laughs> warehouse position. And, and, and Terry and you know, TJ is unfortunately a little out of luck. And in the end, giant takes the receptionist position. Terry takes the, the, the warehouse position. And I, I'm going to pursue my chances in Hollywood and see if I can make it as a, as an actor or something. <laughs> Three, four months go by. I haven't gotten anything. I'm asking for a job telling giant, Hey, can you send me up with me and Rob? Let me see what we can do. Blah, 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 blah. 
I end up having a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Rob. And when I come to this meeting, and once again, this is in the seedy offices of Van Nuys, California, but I go meet with him in my suit and in my, in my uh, French cuff shirt and cufflinks. And I, and I think I actually probably had the Kango hat on back then as well. And I, <laughs> and I, and I brought in a pizza from Amici's because, you know, Rob's a New Yorker and likes a New York style pizza. And, and we had our little interview and talk. And he put me in a position where obviously I have computer skills. So I started doing some shooting and editing on the adult side, which in that way was Rob's way of saying, I'll pay, you know, you obviously get paid on the wrestling shows. I mean, that's, and I had been doing that, but if you want to work for extreme, this is, I, I can't give you a full-time job to work for XPW. XPW doesn't make money to go give salaries like that. But what I can do if you're interested in, in it is give you a full-time job if you're willing to do that. So I ended up taking that job and I worked as an editor and a cameraman and doing graphics and, and, and other mis miscellaneous uh, responsibilities, which also led to responsibilities with XPW, which became helping to produce and write and, and work with the team, which was Kevin Kleinrock, White Trash, Johnny Webb, Rob Black, and myself would, would be what I would call the core creative team. And then Angel was always around. And then, you know, and then Chaos is always around. So like, but, but it was, it was an experience, man. I mean, <laughs> 22, 23 years old, moving to California and working at this crazy, outrageous adult company where we create <laughs> crazy, outrageous pro wrestling and adult movies. It, it was <laughs> It was wild to say the least. <laughs> yeah, it, it's safe to say that this won't ever happen again, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> GQ Money, I want to ask about this. How was the character created? How did you how did you get your way into being like, I gotta get on the show? How do I get on the show? How did this come about? How's the character created? So when I originally sent my promo package into to, to, to the offices. Uh, Kevin once again, and then there was a gentleman by the name of Sean who was working there, and he he saw the video and saw something that he liked and what I offered. Uh, I considered myself pretty good back then and had some cool skills, so so they liked the video, and they originally had thought they were that I was going to be a full time wrestler for them, and they wanted to put me into a tag team called Ultra Violence, and we were going to do the Clockwork Orange characters, uh, and it was going to be with the gentleman who became Youth Suicide on Wrestling Society X, uh, Andre uh, Vernal, I think is his last name, and, and, and who's now an attorney and uh, has went on and, and was a backyard, uh, you know, was one of the people from the original backyard wrestling videotapes as well, and then went to XPW <laughs> and Wrestling Society X and now has a successful career as an attorney. Crazy how life works. Uh, we were gonna be in this team and I essentially said to them, I'm not really looking to be a full-time wrestler. I'm, I consider myself a manager. And I think at that point in my life, and especially in those early 2000s, I just didn't see me at five foot four and my size having a long, you know, having longevity in my career as a wrestler, but as a manager, I can wrestle some matches and then, and then go do what I can do for year after year after year. I mean, obviously I'm small. I don't, I don't know that I'd be able to take the punishment. Now in hindsight, looking at wrestling of today, there is that little piece of me that sits, that sits and goes, what if I would have pursued the wrestling full-time and not just being a manager? Cause I, I do consider myself that I had skills and I was good. And, and I brought amateur skills to the table and credentials and, and, and I picked things up pretty well. And, and I wonder, and then in the last few years in, 
training with some of the guys a little bit or taking some, you know, in a seminar with William Regal, just taking some casual shots. I sit and I go, no, no, I don't want to get hit like that anymore in my life. Cause like, especially in the, in the modern era of wrestling right now, they're, they're, they're walloping the heck out of each other, man. I mean, I mean, they are beating each other up. We are seeing more injuries than ever in different styles. So obviously the old timers all had injuries, but like, we're seeing different styles of injuries now because people are punishing each other now inside <laughs> that ring. It's no joke. It's no joke for anyone that thinks it's soft, easy, and just an act on a trampoline. Oh my God. No, no, try it. And you'll say, Nope, no, thank you. Not anymore. I'm done. <laughs> Excellent, bro. Uh, I wanted to know about the enterprise, uh, your, your fondest memories of your time with uh, chaos and Veronica. Kane. I know other people uh, join the group as well, but um, uh, favorite angles, moments, whatever comes to mind of, of this uh, group that you had going. All of it. And it was really the debut of the enterprise, the way it came together with bringing chaos, the rock superstar into the group. Rob was really brilliant in his thinking and everyone when it was going on was bashing him on the internet and what are they doing? This is so stupid. Why, 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 why? Because what happened when, when, when Veronica brought me into the enterprise, Steve Rosano was also, uh, so it was Veronica and Steve Rosano. And then they brought me and then TJ rush, who's Terry, who I said, moved. Colorado with us uh, became our motivational speaker and then chaos came in at the end so as all of this was going on we built this storyline where where we were going after and trying to hurt chaos and going after him and it was setting up this other match where chaos was leading uh, was going to be in a death match against supreme his uncle and we shot all these storylines uh, two ways. Well, we shot them what aired on TV each week, but when we shot those for like those two months, we shot secondary, secondary videos where it revealed that chaos was in on every one of the little bits. So like when we <laughs> snuck in and broke into Supreme's house, there's a video that came out months later that it was chaos who gave us the key and when we attacked chaos on the street there's a video where we talk about like how we're going to do the move to make it look real and, and and all of these situations so that when the reveal finally happened and then he came into the enterprise boom awesome chaos is part of the enterprise but no the next week on tv we didn't show you chaos anytime the enterprise was in a video segment you only saw chaos standing behind us so we'd be sitting and chaos would be standing and you'd just see his his TV championship that he won uh, the XPW television championship. And you would only see the championship and hear his voice talking and you wouldn't see him. And this is where everyone was like, what are they doing? This is so stupid. Why don't we see him? Why don't we see him? And finally at a big show, which was uh, blown to hell to Halloween in hell, we revealed the rock superstar chaos. He made this transformation from kid chaos to the rock superstar. And that's what the enterprise was all about. The changing of his branding. And then he came out with the bleach blonde hair and the new metallic, you know, trunks with the stars. Oh, uh, Demacho man at that sense. And the pose became an iconic thing for him and, and became a tattoo of his. And, and, and this was the creation of something special. And in 2001, 2002, 
when this happened, the enterprise was the hottest thing in, in, in indie wrestling for sure. And, and it's tough. And there's going to be a ton of people who are going to, who are going to debate that fact and, and go tell me I'm crazy. And part of the way that the history is going to be written may say that I am because we didn't get the same kind of coverage and respect because we were the renegades of wrestling. We were the bad boys of the business. We were the ones that were given everyone the middle finger and, 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 and causing controversy. But the fact is, we were incredible at what we were doing. We were attracting attention. We were bringing forth talent. We were bringing forth charisma. We had a look, we had an appeal, and we had a feel that we brought to the show that made people go, these guys are electric, these guys are special, and these guys are interesting. And I think part of that dynamic goes back to Veronica was in a good, was in a good look, it was an incredibly good looking adult performer. Chaos was this up and coming, hot shot, talented wrestler that was doing incredible stuff in the ring, had great skills, hybrid performer of high, uh, of high flying, of technician, of brawling and all of that. And then me, this little twerpy, obnoxious maggot that every person in the arena thought that they could kick my ass. And it brought forth a, a, a electricity that was palpable, as they say. And you see it in the footage of XPW tapes when there's rows and rows of signs of FGQ and, and oops, I accidentally stepped on GQ and GQ money is three apples high. And, and, and when we went to Philadelphia, there was a whole row once again of the F, you know, spelled out UGQ and all of this. And by the second show, there was people dressing as me. And it, like there was just this, this thing that was created that was awesome. And, and we just had a chemistry where I made him better and he made me better. And Veronica made both of us better together as a package where, 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 the, where the sum was definitely greater than the, I just screwed that whole analogy, but you know what I mean? Some <laughs> I parts, whole, all of it. Yeah, we were we were a unit that worked and and I hate to push Terry and Rosano to the outsides because they were part of the crew. But when you think of the E, it really comes down to chaos, VC and GQ money. Very good. Thank you for sharing all that. Uh, I need to bring up Angel, the hardcore Homer himself. <laughs> I got to bring up XBW Liberty of Death at the Pico Rivera Sports Arena, June 29th, 2002, a raw sewage match, teaming with VC herself to take on Angel and Lizzie Borden. You're involved in a 30-foot drop into sewage. I'd love to know more. Please tell me about this. So my, my favorite match of my career, like one of the top <laughs> five nights of my entire life, like that, like it was just a magical evening of, of everything. Like it was... It was extreme. It was outrageous. It was dangerous. It was cool. It was fun. It was disgusting. It was all these things at once. And, and, and once again, 20, you know, 2002. So uh, I, actually, I'm older than I think I was. So I guess in 2002, I'm 26. I'm probably 25. I'm 25, will be 26 at this point on this show. So 25 years old. The buildup for this match was awesome. So the month previous was our genocide war game style cage match. And in that cage match, I tossed Angel off of our 20 foot high steel cage uh, and then jumped off on top of him and the, and the crew afterwards. So we figured we got to top it. And at Pico Rivera, there's a tower there. And New Jack 
had jumped off the first level of that tower onto me through a table at a show previous, uh, actually that show where chaos made that emergence as the rock superstar. And me and Angel figure we had to one up that as well. So we took it one level higher, 30 legit feet up there. And I remember when we were getting ready for this, I, I usually don't wear these headphones. So sorry that I keep playing with them, okay, uh, but I wanted to wear, I wanted to wear my Kango. Uh, so so <laughs> me and Angel go up there 30 feet high and we're looking. And the original plan, to be honest, was he was going to give me a Falcon's arrow off the thing through the tables. And White Trash Johnny Webb's on the bottom. He's like, are you kidding me? How stupid can you guys be? Do you realize how big of a margin of error there is and how much you can botch that, screw that up and hurt yourself? He's like, just do a sidewalk slam. And we're like, I don't want to do a sidewalk slam. A sidewalk <laughs> slam's stupid. I mean, it's a sidewalk <laughs> slam. He's like, it's not stupid from 30 feet, stupid. And all this is going on. And finally, like Angel picks me up and we're like, yeah, this could work. That's really simple. And, and, and go. Let's go back even more to set this up. So we did setups on TV that were great where me and me and uh, Veronica were coming out of a convenience store to go get some milk because that's, you know, what the droogs do uh, is, and we're coming out and Angel attacked us in the parking lot with the sewage truck. So he had this big tanker truck and the hose and he just started hosing us down with sewage in the parking lot. And for people that don't necessarily or only see the match of what's available on YouTube, the TV show is where XPW really shined. It was just ridiculous Saturday Night Live, kids in the hall style, just, just outrageous <laughs> comedy bits that sometimes had nothing to do with wrestling and sometimes did, but they all did eventually advance the storyline. So in these storylines, we got attacked with the sewage truck and that led to, to me and Veronica having to get cleaned up. And this is one of the moments in tele, uh, this is one of the phases of XPW where every single week on television, I was trying to find a way to expose my ass because I just <laughs> thought it was funny because that's what 25 year old men do. They say, Hey, how can I push the boundaries and be outrageous and stupid? So I wanted to show my butt every single week on television. And one of the skits after the sewage was Veronica's in the shower and I'm in the bathtub cleaning off this 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 attack that we had and, and there's poop everywhere and, and I'm like trying to scrub it and I'm just got my butt it's just funny stupid stuff but then people got to see Veronica's butt in that too so you know it was like an, we, we were all about equality right there gender equality in XPW <laughs> men's ass and women's ass uh, <laughs> so it, it, it led to the story of the sewage and the sewage was crazy, man. 30 feet high, two tables stacked on top of two tables with a kiddie pool of sewage on top of it. And my favorite part, or one of my favorite parts is that the aftermath, you know, the day after the, the reports coming out from the sheets and like in the observer and in the torch and all that were that Rob Black was such a scumbag that he used real sewage. And they know <laughs> that because I was, because GQ money was puking in the back. And, and it was just like, oh, the, the, the build of reality. I've been involved in so much in my life that has been kayfabe and fake that even to this day, people like think of as real things. And it makes me so happy that we're able to, to do that. And, and, and it's extreme entertainment, of course, but like it's part of the art form of what we do. I remember, you know, just bringing it forward at my wrestling school. Uh, I had crowned one of my students as our new champion. And then we hit the music for one of your past guests, Brawl and Bo Cooper, who was the co-trainer at my school. And when all attention moved to Bo at the entranceway, I gave my student a tooth, told him, put it in your mouth. And when Bo gives you the big boot, roll in front of the crowd and spit it into your hand. And all of a sudden he did it. 
And then the next day on the SoCal message boards, it was what a terrible trainer I am because Bo knocked my student's tooth out. And it was like, you got worked, buddy. You got worked, man. That was like my wisdom tooth that was cleaned and disinfected eight years earlier. Like you got worked. That's the job. That's what we're supposed to do. So like the enterprise was all about that and working people and working angles. Another favorite enterprise moment. Like it really wasn't, but it was just, it just stands out as this big thing was, the, the January New Year's Revolution show where the Enterprise promised the greatest debut, blah, blah, blah. And then we pulled off the, the homeless man from the street because it was the greatest debut you never would expect is how it was. And then it was like, yep, you never would have expected that one, would you? And, and the truth is the, the, the names we were working at fell through and didn't work out. And this was our recovery plan of how we were going to get by. But whoo, the people didn't like that one. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how you learn lessons. I learned lessons in promoting from that, that we overhyped and underdelivered. And I learned, you know, from, from those mistakes, underhype and overdeliver. And that's how you can satisfy an audience. Absolutely, bro. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, uh, Want to kind of put a little bit of a bow here on the XPW experience. How are you feeling about your career when it was clear that XPW was likely done with? It was rough. I mean, so so I, I knew I made a decision. So uh, obviously being in the office, writing was on the wall that things were coming to an end and, and the honeymoon was over, so to speak. There were issues coming up with attendance at shows. Rob was just in another world to me at that point where his focus had changed and it was now about the vendetta against other feds instead of just worrying about what we're doing on our own. I mean, he went and bought the ECW arena and I don't mean leased it out for some shows. He bought the arena so no one else can run shows. And that's what actually got CZW and Ring of Honor and all of the other smaller East Coast feds to kind of team up against us. And I actually believe that's what kind of led to what led to the tips and the raid, you know, on Extreme Associates and, and what led to to the case that landed him in federal penitentiary where, where he served for, you know, obscenity issues, uh, which I will say, man, the, the guy was, a, was a fighter of freedom. Like I, I actually don't think he did anything wrong with that. I, th I think he got a bad rap and, and people weren't behind him. Now I can understand why some people weren't behind him in terms of his attitude and, and the vibe that he presented. But at the same point, that man fought for freedom. And, and at that point you got to give him some respect and you can, you, I, I understand people that don't like him. I had a different experience. My experience was pretty positive generally, and we had ups and downs and I, left him you know left and stopped working for him twice and went back to working for him but like you know it, it was cool stuff and it, it, I, I forgot exactly how you started the question because I, I went off on this tangent but like I, I mean the memories are incredible for me like it helped me become the person I am and and I'm not I'm not actually an extreme personality anymore I, I've definitely slowed down and softened in my age and I, and I'm much more about love, peace and happiness and, and live a much more baby face than heel like persona <laughs> in, in, in my real life day to day. But at the same point, I wouldn't be able to be the person I was if I didn't experience what it was at XPW and be around people I had never been around. And I mean, let's, let's be honest, being around sex industry workers, it gives you a different sense of reality of what the world is and takes away stigmas and takes away taboos and makes you, you know, and, and humanizes and makes you see people differently and makes you even change your viewpoints when you understand reasons and motivations and you understand the, the you know, the moral fiber behind or the heart and the ethics and the, 
there's so much more. And now at this point in life of trying to spread a world of, you know, or trying to build a world of positivity and spread a message of love and peace, because there is so much negativity and there is so much criticism and there is so much opinion and finger pointing and button pushing that, you know, someone, someone's got to do the other side and balance it out. And, and, and at this point in my life, I've been able to have the growth and evolution to hopefully be that and live a life of smiliness and, 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 and spread that for others. But XPW is absolutely one of those things that, that made me who I am today. And I'll never really have bad words to say about the experience. It was the best. Awesome, bro. Uh, a couple more. I didn't questions. answer your question at all. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was about how you felt about your career when it was clear that XPW was. Uh, so, so when it was coming to an end, I was uncertain of what was going to happen. So then, me, Chaos, and, and and my girlfriend at the time was was J Love over there. We were we were working out what we were going to do, and we decided to make the move to Nashville and try to go pursue TNA at the time. And I. Th- that didn't work, not because it didn't work at TNA. That didn't work because we had a combustion of personalities in the house we were living with. And it kind of threw our careers off track. Whereas if I think me and chaos would have stuck with it as a duo, we could have had some success, but that's not where life took us. We kind of had a, a disruption of friendship that, that lasted for a few years until we reconciled at WS, you know, after WSX. Uh, but I, I was definitely disappointed with the end of XPW, but at that point, I also knew there was more I wanted to do with my career. There was more I was ready to be able to pursue, and I knew I was going to be able to make opportunities for myself. And while it was slow, you know, history shows that that, that did happen. But for anyone who's pursuing and goes through this, you got to understand persistence is key. Dedication is a necessity because it took me. Uh, I got hired by WWE in 2013. I started on June 3rd, 2013. My first interview with WWE was in 1999, February 1999. I went up there and had a job for a you know, job interview for a production assistant position. It went pretty well, but I didn't get the job. They told me to go get experience. I started a wrestling company after starting the wrestling company. And even after going to XPW, when I was moving, when I moved to Nashville, I pursued WWE again and I sent them letters of recommendation from Scott Hudson, who was, you know, WCW commentator. And at that point was, was commentating in, in other areas. And, and this gentleman, Dave Price, who was the CBS national weatherman, you know, uh, out here in the States. And, and I got a rejection letter. And then three years later, I pursued again and I got a rejection letter and that kept happening and kept happening until finally 2012, I was able to break through and I was able to get that meeting. And once again, that meeting happened because I presented a really good looking freaking person. And that person actually happens to be Luciosaurus right now. So I was able to, by presenting that I had access to bring him in for a look, able to open the doors up for myself. And that opened the doors with Ty Bailey, who was doing, who was talent relations at the time. And then we had a meeting at SummerSlam in Los Angeles. We had a breakfast together and I presented him some of my students. I presented him, uh, you know, Luchasaurus, who, who, who was Austin at the time. Uh, and he invited me to the tryout they were doing at SummerSlam. And, and not, for, and for me, that was more of was on a business side. It was really interesting actually, because all, uh, because when Ty was there, and, and the wrestlers. So this guy, Kevin Lucata in, uh, in Austin and one more wrestler that I had brought were there. Ty wasn't very friendly to any of them, but he treated me with this respect that was that I had noticed that was like, you're not treating me the same as everyone else. And, I, and I'm not saying that like, oh, that's awesome, because it was also like, 
you're, you're kind of being a prick to these people, which I don't necessarily love, but I also know that's kind of part of the way of, of, of what this is. And it's the toughness and it's the wall and it's the shield uh, of breaking people down before they're able to get into the company. But the relationship began. And then he brought me in for a referee tryout after that. And then, and then from that, and I was like, and then when that one happened, I was like, Whoa, this is weird because I've done every job in wrestling except refereeing. So it's like, if that's what WWE is going to look at me at it, it just became weird to me in my mindset where it was like, I manage, I commentate, I, I do promotions. I, I edit, I shoot. I like, I do everything there is except for refereeing and well, we're going to give you a referee tryout. Cool. Uh, I was also de definitely more of a white collar computer guy. So the idea of building the rings every day was not fond to me, especially because like when I first broke into wrestling, I dropped the ring post and almost broke the eyelid off of it my first time. So <laughs> I, I used to work on the set, not the actual ring. So my, 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 my set building was, was on the entranceway, usually <laughs> never the ring. So I didn't think that was a good fit for me, but in the end I got offered, a, I got offered a deal and, and it was going to be for a manager. I got offered a talent deal. And then while waiting for, for my medical day, that became a whole story and it's, and it's available also, but like Ty ends up getting fired the day after I get my contract in the mail. And then, <laughs> and then a few days after that, the news comes out that FCW is shutting down. And about a month later, they rescinded the offer on me and I no longer had a contract. And once again, the ups and downs of the career of persistence, dedication, sacrifice, stick with it. If you want it, if you know you're good enough, if you know that this is what you're meant to do, make sure that you build the skill set to be undeniable and they're going to come back to you. And they eventually came to me and offered the job that I had for the last eight and a half you know, years. Excellent, bro. I'll get into a couple of those questions in a second. But XPW 2022, who would have thought that this would be going <laughs> on right now? Uh, any chance, any chance that you might show up there at some point uh, in the foreseeable future? No, there's not. And, and, I, and, I, and I wish I could dangle the carrot. And I probably <laughs> now I'm actually kicking myself in the head because the least I could have done was be GQ money and help make the XPW <laughs> a little bit of money right there and make people believe. But like the past is the past and my future is my future. As I said, I, I, I really do believe I, I'm on a. And it's nothing against anything that's going on. It's just, I want to in my life be a role model and a representative of good in the world. And while you can absolutely be that and go do other crazy stuff, I don't think that's the right fit for my personality at this time. And I wish everyone the best and I wish them success. And I love seeing that at this next one, there's this women's tournament with all of these women that you never would have ever imagined would be a part of an XPW show like Deanna Perrazzo and Steph Delander and Camille and and you're sitting there like whoa 2022 takes us on a huge <laughs> little revolution around the world we're now like that's the place where like top women wrestlers are going to show up to prove themselves cool more power to them and I love it and I hope the streams do well and all I know is that last show went seven and a half hours <laughs> and it went to like 2 30 in the morning yeah. and I I fall asleep at like 9 45 like even if I want to stay up late I'm usually like passed out on the couch like early like like there's a lot of times where like my wife looks at me and she's like it's not even nine yet dude it's <laughs> not even nine yet 
<laughs> oh, amazing stuff, bro. Thank you for the answer. I wanted to bring it to the 18th of May, 2013. I, w- I will get into some WWE questions in a second, but it's for MPW, uh, Simi Valley, California. Your good old friend, Brawlin' Bo Cooper, who wrestled at the last oh, show. <laughs> this was the last match. Uh, when you look back, how does this uh, last match that you that you performed, how does it make you feel? It makes me feel pretty good, and it makes me feel real proud. And I'm incredibly happy that it was against Bo, and it means a lot to me that that was something that we were able to keep uh, as a legacy between us. Uh, Bo always admired me from my XPW days. And I don't even remember our original interactions that he would always tell me about. But then after XPW, like, you know, in, in my post, you know, indie days at that point, we, we developed a friendship and a camaraderie and to the point where I brought him in as a co-trainer when I opened my wrestling school and he became my champ and he actually still has that Fitbit championship at his house, like in his possession. And so for him to be my opponent, meant a lot to me and also just the contrast of 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 style and size i i don't want to go red like i'm not i love my matches against angel and we had a ton of them and in those i mean that was my whole career was me at angel uh Bo was a big dude. I like wrestling big guys. I love having that big base. I love that I jump and they just stand there and I fall off. To me, that's just humorous, entertaining stuff. And I like to be able to do that. So when the match happened, I loved it. I thought it was great. When I watch it back now, under the guise of having worked at WWE, <laughs> I wish I can edit out three spots that I wish no one saw. But other than that, I love the match. But there's this one horrible jump of mine off the ropes where I'm just so horribly out of shape slow and fat that it's like I'm (laughs) falling off the ropes not really jumping off the ropes uh there's this one I think it was a drop down where I I I throw like this limp armed clothesline and possibly even with the wrong arm or something stupid I drop down the wrong way out of laziness like I think it was just exhaustion I didn't turn on my drop down and I just drop like it just there's I, I don't think it's three. I think it's those two spots in the match that anytime I wanted to show someone at, at WWE, because I did love I, I do love the match and it makes me happy. But there's those two spots where I'm like, oh, no, and it exposes me and I don't like to expose myself. <laughs> but awesome stuff. I mean, we, we had a moment where I blew him up with an explosion. <laughs> like I love moments <laughs> like that. We fought over to the to the audio AV production area and I slammed his head into the equipment. And all of a sudden there was a huge explosion of sparks and smoke and fire. And it was awesome and incredibly dangerous. And I could have blinded him very easily, but it entertained me for the night. (laughs) And thankfully he wasn't hurt. And he put me through some tables and his, his big, 350 pound bronco buster is brutal he's like hey, it's not too bad just put your forearms out there it's like that's great dude but now my forearms are killing me for the next week and a half and i have like dead arms that i'm moving around with because i got big old bruises on my forearms trying to absorb the weight of your body uh yeah but but like me and Bo just like interjected ourselves into storylines at MPW. And then I interjected myself into my own storyline with the hobo. And I actually stole hobo's championship belt, which is actually right there above my <laughs> you know, thumb right there in the corner. Uh, and the, you know, so I took back my MPW maximum championship, but then after I, 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 I was on shows defending it, even though I hadn't earned it, then I ended up beating hobo and became the rightful champion. So, Hey, I mean, 
good times and good memories and the wackiness of wrestling is something that makes you just go yeah <laughs> <laughs> absolutely bro uh Okay, I don't want to skim too much through this this portion of your your life, you know, uh, as you're talking about uh, the persistence to to get the uh, this goal that you had to to work behind the scenes in in, in WWE. Um, so I'll but, so I'll actually I'll cut you right there because sure. my goal was never to work behind the scenes. I loved right. working behind the scenes. Loved it. Had one of the best jobs in the world. And anyone who's worked with me knows I went in there with with a hundred percent enthusiasm, smile on my face. Tried to make people's days better. Tried to motivate and inspire and do all of that. Loved what I did. However, there was always that little pit inside my heart that was like, I want to be performing. I could be doing this too. I'm helping you with promos but i could cut a good promo like <laughs> in my life i always wanted to perform so once again i always knew that i had to build my skill set up to be able to do the behind the scenes and i actually always wanted to do it in addition to but when the performance side wasn't there the in addition to then becomes well once again i had the best job in the world and i loved it and i would do it again and and i would help people and produce packages all of those things it became a job to me I love my job, but it went from that whole theory of, well, if you love what you do, it's not work. It was like, it starts to become work because now if you're grinding for 16 hours a day for yourself, there's this pursuit and there's this satisfaction because you're getting your own growth. And while I got growth as an individual, and once again, eight years of my life that made me who I am today, who I'm proud of, and I'm in, and I look forward to being, it, it, it's still it wasn't about me. So all of a sudden, 14 hours of doing stuff and then to the next and then to the next and then to the next day and doing it again and again, it becomes a lot of work because it's not personal payoff. You're feeding a machine and you're happy about it and your work mm -hmm. is doing well, but it's there's less of a personal satisfaction. You're not getting credit. You're not getting the accolades. You're not getting the attention. You're not getting the, hey, here's the pat on the back or, hey, it was this guy. It was this, you know, WWE is a machine and we're all part of it. You know, or we, you know, or I, we were, or I was all part of it. That, that it's a group mentality and we're all doing it for the better of the show. So you lose a little bit of that personal. Now, I'll tell you what, when, when the Perfect 10 Ty Dillinger debuted on SmackDown, there was every bit of personal growth, glory, and, and love, and, and vicariously being able to live through his success and not feeling a jealousy, but feeling a, a, a wonderful nature of, wow, I got to be a part of helping him get there, and this guy's living his dream. And when Rusev and Lana were at WrestleMania coming out of the tank, and I'm sitting in a crowd with a tear dripping from my eye, I mean, obviously, that's authentic uh, uh, emotion and real. Man, I got to be a part of helping them create this, and they're living their dreams. So to be involved in helping other people live their dreams is special and it's rewarding and it's enriching and it helps you grow. But there's still also a big chunk inside of me that says, I still haven't gotten my dream yet, reached my dream yet, and I'm not done trying and I'm going to keep pursuing. Love hearing it, bro. Uh, you, you, you kind of uh, dabbled into it as you were just talking about your, your last answer there. I want to hear about a typical week in the life of Ryan Katz, working with NXT, working uh, in, in the PC? 
So there really was no such thing as typical because things were always changing and evolving. Uh, there would be anything from doing in-house shows. People don't know a lot about the, the in-house PC lives as they were called. Uh, there were these in-house house shows and we had storylines and we had packages and, and we created drama and hype. And it was only the other, you know, the other students, trainees, performers, superstars in the crowd, co coaches and staff in the crowd. But we put on these shows that were awesome. And these were the building blocks that helped people debut on NXT. And then we had promo classes and then there was training. So at any given day, I could be running around with the video camera to shoot some training, or I could be interviewing someone or working on just working on uh, character development seminars and, and workshops, or I could be just on the computer, you know, tagging our internal system and, and, and just keeping the content organized, or I could be helping with IT and helping people log in with their, you know, various computer issues, uh, especially in the first four to five years, the last three years, four years, uh, when, when Jeremy Borash and, and Jimmy Long came in, a lot of the technical stuff changed and they took over a lot of that stuff, which was awesome, uh, took it to the next level in new heights, which was incredible to see. But like those beginning years, especially breaking in, I did anything and everything I could to make the job of everyone easier. I was asked to be indispensable when I took my job and I took that very seriously and I committed myself to where generally I got to the performance center at 6 in the uh, 6 a.m. in the morning where me, Bill DeMott, uh, Billy Gunn and strength and uh, conditioning coach at that time, Matt Wichlinski would work out. And we would work out and then I would essentially be at the PC till probably eight or 9 PM, you know, every, every single day, do that four or five days a week. And I say four or five because on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we would have our coconut loop, you know, our live event loops around Florida. So at that point, we'd leave the performance center in the afternoon to go to the shows. We wouldn't get home from the shows until 2 a.m. And at that point at 2 a.m., I would actually stay up for the next couple hours and process the video clips so they'd be available to watch the next day. Uh, it, it meant something to me to make sure that people had stuff quick, that people now, it also meant something to me that people really never saw me work. So at the performance center in all those hours, you'd see me interacting with people a lot. And, I, and, and that's working because through the storyline development or character development, you know, just talking is working. You're workshopping, you're getting ideas, you're getting flow. I'm listening to people's speech patterns. I'm listening to the rhythm. So when I write for them, I can actually try to write in their cadence, in their rhythm, in their vernacular, in their slang and all of those types of things. Uh, so, so I always just wanted to deliver and be the kind of person that you never saw me do the work, but the work was always done. And if someone said, hey, can you make me this? All of a sudden in 20 minutes, it was like, there it is. And everyone's going, well, how did you just do that? And it was like, it's kind of the magic of what I do. That's what makes me who I am. And that's what my 25 years of experience in this business has brought me is the ability to make it look effortless and to make it look magic, you know, magical. I've, I've always been a fan of, of the conjuring arts. I've, I, I've, I've been a, a student of the, of the magician's game for quite some time. I'm not a great performer but but I'm knowledgeable in in the practice of smoke and mirrors and I understand how 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 that and misdirection and all of those things come together to wow and 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 be you know and and bring uh wonderment to, to people is wonderment a word I don't know I just made that up if it's not it sounds uh, good. <laughs> and, and do that so and some of the ways for me to do that was to just have the work always done 
without them seeing me do it. So if that meant that outside of the eight and 10 hours at the performance center that I still did six and seven hours at home, then I still did six and seven hours at home and walked in there and did everything else that was needed to do and, and lug stuff around and carried this and did that. And can I help you with this? And what do you need there? And how can I help you here? And in that sense, I was able to build up a respect and, and, and be able to have a career there that lasted pretty long. And I wish I could say it lasted longer. And I was hoping I could have hit 10 and gotten a 10 year plaque or something. Uh, <laughs> but that's cool. Light, light, life goes forward. And, and I'm enriched and evolved for have had the experience and I got to learn from the best of the best and I got to be around Dusty Rhodes and Triple H and Terry Taylor and Norman Smiley and and Billy Gunn DeMont and Matt Bloom and Robbie Brookside and William Regal I mean like everyone like I, I got to sit with the best of the best and learn as, as, as you know side by just just an incredible experience Absolutely. I can only imagine how uh, amazing that experience would have been. One question I want to ask, uh, I want to take something from the past and see if it helped you in the future. Uh, anything you learned from your time in XVW that you found helpful when you were working behind the scenes there? Yeah, work ethic. So everyone talks about how, how tough of a boss Vince McMahon could be and how demanding and aggressive and, and, and the hours and the grind of being in the WWE machine. And it's like, no, go, jumping into that was easy. It was pussycat stuff to me. I mean, XPW, I'd have a full work day and we wouldn't even start shooting our XPW vignettes until 2, 2 a.m. in the morning and go to 5 a.m. and go home and get maybe three hours of sleep and come back and do it again. So having a boss like Rob Black, who was yelling, screaming, cursing, having the ability to be able to shut that out, zone out, focus, li listen to, the, to what's being yelled about, do the job being asked and, 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 and block the noise and get the job done. So, so I would say overall, just the, the time at XPW was, was imperative for, for my success at, at WWE just because of work ethic and the machine. Once again, everyone talks about, and when I'd be there, it's, oh, I, you know, I know what it's like to be, you know, just everyone would talk about how rough and tough the yelling or, or what the atmosphere is like. And it's like, no, the, the, I, this isn't new to me. And, and you guys think this is bad. No, I've, I've been through worse and, and I've accomplished my, you know, I, I've, I've accomplished what was needed through worse and I can do it here. And the same type of mentality and attitude. So once again, if you're looking to be successful in there, work ethic, you got to be able to live it, love it and make it happen 24, seven, 365. When I was at my school, we went for, a, I started a 13 week web series called Fight Night at the Pit where it was just a weekly little webisode of one match, maybe two, uh, but there was a little storyline and hype built around it. But my whole premise for doing it was to prep me for a WWE job where we would shoot it on Wednesday nights at my school. And then I would pull that all nighter and edit that thing, post-produce it, do all the graphics, do all the packaging that night so that in the morning when people woke up, the episode was delivered. And the main reason, sometimes computers failed and renders took too long and it didn't get up till the mid-afternoon the next day. But the whole point of doing that was to really continue that training of work ethic of no you're going to have to pull all-nighters and you're going to have to make the impossible happen and sometimes if the computer's rendering too slow well maybe you got to find a way to 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 change the graphics so it's got an easier shorter render and you got to think of how to do these things on the fly and be adaptable and make those changes and be versatile and all those types of things so 
XPW taught me that. It, it taught me the skills to hold the camera. It taught me the skills to edit. Taught me the skills to work my butt off. It taught me the skills to the skills to focus out the noise. Like XPW made the person and it made the worker, the employee that I am. Excellent. That's a great answer. Really loved hearing about all that. You, you've mentioned Dusty Rhodes. I have to ask the question: What did you learn the most from the American Dream? to believe in myself and to always stay true. Uh, I mean, D Dusty was a magical man of energy and passion, and he had this aura that just brought you in and made you feel connected and made you want to listen to him and made you want to just take his guidance. And he, and he was that. He was a guidance counselor. He was a mentor. He was a friend. He was a leader. And, and, and I learned just, just, just to be... I learned to keep my rebel spirit. So I learned that even in the system of WWE, that through it all and through what's being asked and through the corporatization, you know, the corporatization of, of my personality and, and having to calm down this and tone down and tame this to always stay true to who I was and be me and tiptoe my uh, tiptoe my way to that, to that line uh, that you shouldn't cross and maybe, maybe push you, push your pinky toe across it until until you feel you're comfortable and until they think it's too much and they slap you back and then you keep going he just taught me to be free and he, and he taught me to be creative and he taught me to make movies and he taught me to to just let it go i mean that's what he, he, he taught me to just let it go that's really cool thanks for that um i got a couple more questions before we get to our final segment here bro uh this has been a fantastic interview uh you're clearly quite a creative guy you've clearly got quite good ideas about you know what you like and and, and what how you can help other people out what is your personal philosophy and what makes a great episode of pro wrestling and that's from top to bottom all the characters on the shows threading a story from start to, to, to finish, threading from one show to another. What makes a perfect kind of uh, wrestling show for you? What an interesting and great question. I, I've never been asked it like that. And, that. and that's awesome. So for me, it's the variety show aspect. It's trying to, to or it's knowing that you can't please all of your audience all of the time, but you want to be able to please everyone in the audience at some time. And, and, and now through that, it, it, I, it's the contrast of style. So it's by having the big guys. It's by having the small guys. It's by having the brawlers and by having the flyers and by having having the technicians and by having the comedy Gaga and then having the stories. I, I, I think stories should be intertwined throughout the show. I, I think you want to tease people and then, you know, have a setup or a tease and then let it pay off. And the bigger the star, obviously, the more little bits that you can get that you could have a three part, four part, you know, a three part vignette backstage kind of set up and then the match. And I do believe every match should have something. And it was even my philosophy when booking live events uh, for, for my own indie. I, I've never been one to be a fan of just putting matches on a card. It, it doesn't do it for me. I love wrestling, but I don't just want to see wrestling matches. I want some story. I, I want there to be exposition that carries, carries forth. And I know that's not everyone's opinion. So like some people would hate my shows because we would, sh we, we would start with a five minute segment but that segment usually had some sort of cool entertainment it wasn't a boring five minute promo that just dragged on 
it was it was interesting. So that brings to the next phase of what's needed on a show: unpredictability and and you know and surprises. You you want things to happen that shouldn't happen, and and you want an unexpected nature. I remember when the COVID era started and we were dealing with with no audiences. I started trying to think of clever ideas of how to utilize that in storyline. And in the end, I, I think the company decided we didn't want to draw attention to why there's no audience and, and, and make it a COVID world. So we didn't go in that route. But to me, there were all these opportunities to start playing with mysterious, weird things happening in the venue that then you could reveal that a wrestler was part of it, that because of the, the, the reduced amount of people that now there's vulnerabilities and openness where people are doing something and people are able to patch into videos and hack this and that or turn off this or glitch that and blah 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 and there is anarchy and when it came to in the end they tried to do stuff with redemption it's funny they different ideas at different times but similar similar kind of concepts that, that that i wouldn't even say brought up i don't even know that i formally pitched some of these but like just possibilities to, to to make unexpected things happen it then goes into the cliffhanger man like We've lost cliffhanger television. I mean, we all remember the Monday Night Wars and there was a cliffhanger aspect to where you had to tune in to see how the next episode was going to start because it ended with a little bit of mystery. It built suspense. Bischoff said it best in his book with the controversy creates cash and he always had a good philosophy of how to do it. And, 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 and it's easier said than done because look, TNA would have 10 years ago been able to propel themselves to this monstrous company, even, even under Bischoff's direction, if what he said was magical and true. And, and we see that in practice, it doesn't always work how you want it to. But like all of those things are necessary. It, it, it's really hard to say what makes a good show now because the audience is so different because you look at television and you look at AEW and, and they have a very interesting product that caters to a very specific fan base. And it's cool, but it, it, it's not even worth criticizing certain aspects of the product because for that fan base, they're, they're, it's not worth the criticism. That, that, that's right and good to them. I, I'll say also, it, it's hard after being in WWE for, for, for so long and listening and seeing and hearing the philosophies of what wrestling is under that lens and microscope to now go watch wrestling on the indies or go watch impact or go watch AEW. There's so many things that mentally my mind starts going, Oh my God, what are they doing? What are they doing? And it's like, no, that's WWE's way of doing it. That doesn't mean that what they're doing is wrong. So I think as an audience and as a people, this is where I brought up like the negativity of the world. We're so hypercritical and so over-involved in our own opinions and that our opinions are believed to be facts and that not only are they our own facts in the world and the life and the rules that we live by, but that we believe that if you don't believe that, that, that you don't belong in our world or that you're wrong in every single way. And it's like, that's not the case. So, so it is hard to say what makes a, a great, perfect show because the audience is so uh, fragmentalized <laughs> that they're an important part of what makes a good show. And it's tough to have an audience that gets pleased by everything because all of a sudden you're pleasing this subsection and, the, and this subsection of the crowd's going crazy. But this subsection is like, that's not what I want to see right now. I want to get back to this. And it, it, so it's hard to present that perfect show but, but that's what we try. I mean, you can't reach perfection, but you sure try to get it to as close as you can. 
Excellent, bro. Fantastic answer. Thank you so much for that. And I'm so glad that I asked you a question that you felt like you hadn't had uh, put that way before. So I've done my I'll job. Just, I'll, qu- I'll continue one more. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's the Muppet Show, man. I mean, it, 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 it's, ab- it's about that chaos. It's about the show that's supposed to happen. And then the way that real world steps in, chaos happens, Murphy's Law takes place and things go wrong and the scramble to put it back together and make it happen. Happen. Those are those exciting moments where it makes as an audience member, you feel real, like you're a part of something that's that, that's living and breathing, and you're a part of what it is. Excellent, bro. Uh, last question before I get you to plug everything that's going on. And before we get to our final segment, what do you think you're going to miss most about working with NXT and working uh, in that environment? It's the people for sure, man. Like the greatest thing of those last nine years was getting to meet amazing people from all around the world that were different than me, that spoke different languages from me, came from different cultures than me and be able to learn from them, work with them, and then just see them succeed. So it's funny. I kind of like said how like you want your own success, you know, or I want my own success. And, and you started getting tired of, you know, while I appreciated and loved everyone living their dreams, there is something incredible about watching someone live their dream. And when that dream also is representing their, uh, their country, their culture, their people, it, it, it's more than just, hey, I wanted to like, I wanted to pursue this dream of being an entertainer and being a wrestler and being a rapper. And it was like, it, it, generally speaking, if we're going to examine it, it's selfish, it, it's selfish based needs. Like I, I want to do it for me. I want to perform <laughs> and be happy and, and have fame and people like me, but like, while they all want that too, they're doing it for more because there is a weight and a pressure of like, they, they represent something bigger and, and I find that incredible. So like Valentina Faraz, Ulisa Leon, Zaya Lee, uh, uh, amazing talent that like moved, they, they, they relocated from around the world to a country where they didn't speak the language to a sport that they weren't familiar with, where they went five days a week to learn, where on top of the already incredibly, uh, incredibly hard uh, training regimen that everyone would say is incredibly hard, even from, you know, anyone that walks through that system, they then did like five days of language classes on top of that, like the work ethic, the desire, the drive. I mean, that's something that, that being around that fuels you being around that motivates you. It makes you better. So now when I'm home and I'm sitting here and, 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 and I'm a motivated person so I can get some work done, but there's definitely times where I'm feeling lazy and I don't have that drive. I'll tell you what, at the performance center, you couldn't ever feel that way there. Like I, I at least was always gassed up every single second I was going and on full blast because there's an energy that moved through that building that just fed you and made you want to go and made you want to raise the bar and exceed your potential and be better than you were the previous day. So that's what I'm going to miss the people and the energy they brought forth. Excellent, bro. Uh, Thank you for sharing all that. Here's your opportunity now. I mean, my platform certainly isn't going to be as big as your platform with the D-O-double-G, but for anyone (laughs) out there who may not be aware, please plug everything that's going on in your life right now. 
Yeah, for the general know-all know and wherewithal, and I, I can't even talk anymore. For the general <laughs> knowledge of knowing what I'm doing, check out my website at ryanismiley.com, ryanismiley.com. And then I'd also just like to plug and let people know that I wrote a little ebook for how to kind of break into pro wrestling. It's called How to Be a Pro Wrestler. It's available at howtobeaprowrestler.com. It's kind of a quick read and research guide for just breaking into the business and telling you what you need to know, how you can stand apart from everyone else, and some little just tips and tricks to make you kind of be able to be the best version of yourself and be the performer that you want to be and take it to the levels you want to, if that's getting to WWE, if that's working on the smaller level, or even if not as a wrestler, that's just working behind the scenes in certain aspects. It's obviously geared much more for the American market with a list of resources and wrestling schools in the United States, but for anyone that wants to, it's available on the Amazon kindle store as well and it's just a quick little research guide that i think people will appreciate uh on top of that i mean there's just a little bit more boca raton championship wrestling is growing and you'll be hearing more about it in the months to come as we as we make this thing bigger and better and create a presence in south florida that brings a nice uh retro style that brings the neon and flamingos back to professional wrestling and just overall follow me on the social media ryan is smiley at instagram and I am Smiley on Twitter. Excellent, bro. Thank you so much. And everyone, everything that Ryan's just talked about down there in the description on YouTube when this goes out, Ryan... Get the book. It's only five bucks. I'll get it, bro. I'll get it. I don't want to break into the business, but <laughs> I'll get it, bro. <laughs> it's time now, Ryan. It's time for the final segment here on the Insider's Edge podcast. It's called Five Second Frenzy. You have five seconds to answer each question. And even if you break the five second rule, there's nothing I can do about it. But it was just <laughs> my, my way of trying to get through things quickly. First question here, Ryan Katz, who is your favorite wrestler of all time? Macho Man Randy Savage. Fantastic answer. The second one here, who was your favorite opponent through your time in pro wrestling? Hardcore homo angel. Excellent, bro. Uh, if you could pick one match, one match that was your favorite that you performed in, what would you pick? Raw sewage match. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent, bro. Getting away from wrestling now, do you have a favorite book? Oh, my goodness. Hiding the Elephant, which is a, a, a book about magic by, I believe it's George Steinbrier. Uh, but what, one of my favorites. Interesting. Excellent. Excellent. A favorite TV show. Love on the Spectrum. Oh, big bro. fan on Netflix right now. I <laughs> find it to be so charming and, it and, and, it, and it's incredible. <laughs> I agree 100%. Uh, you got to check out the Australian version. There's, there's an Australian that, that, that's, that's what got me into oh, that's it. The, one? the first two seasons was the Australian and they just launched the American, which I don't know Why? if it's going to be as, as good. The Australian's incredible. They're, oh, I, <laughs> I, I love I love I love watching it so much. I mean, just watching the genuine love is incredible. Like I said, we need good things in the world and that and that's good, wholesome <laughs> stuff. Yeah, absolutely, bro. Uh, moving from TV, favorite film? Oh, cool runnings. Jamaican <laughs> bobsled <bro>. team, man. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, favorite musical artist or band? KRS One. Knowledge reigns supreme over nearly everyone. Boogie Down Productions. Yeah. <laughs> nice, bro. Getting away from the arts now. Favorite food? Chocolate chip cookies, but they got to be vegan and plant based now. 
<laughs> nice, Fro. Uh, favorite place to eat on the road? Oh, that's a tough one because I like to cook. So like I'm stuck on the road at like a Chipotle because the Sofritas works for me in a good way and plant based. There's also a place called like, yeah, like the, the chain restaurants are coming smaller and smaller. So Chipotle is the easiest one to say on the road. Very I nice. broke five seconds right there. I'm trying to keep it quick. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, bro. It's okay. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if you're a drinker. This was supposed to be your favorite alcoholic beverage. If you don't drink though, favorite beverage in general. Tangeray and tonic. Very nice. Very, very nice, actually. Uh, the second last one here, Ryan, it's the naughtiest one, but it doesn't have to be naughty. It could also be classy. Favorite female body part. You see a good looking lady. Where, where may the eyes of Ryan Katz head to first? Oh, that's an interesting one. Five seconds. I got to answer. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, I just got stumped on my favorite body part. What is no pressure. my pressure? If you need more than five seconds, it's okay. No, I mean, now I'm just blanking and I can't even answer. I'm going to say the eyes. That's a terrible answer. No, we get the eyes a lot. We get the eyes a lot. I think I think eyes is one of my favorite. You know, Don Morocco told me he's it's an the Arsenal. smile. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Don Morocco is an ass man. Uh, Nikita Koloff said he likes the shape of a woman. Uh, Scott Hudson said uh, he the brain was his favorite. That, that's, not- a, that's a great. That's a great answer, and, and and I think that's. I mean, I feel like fit that one. Like <laughs> I, I like intelligence. I do, but I wouldn't think of that as a body part. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. My right. wife is incredibly intelligent. She has great eyes. She has a great smile, and I like everything else about her. <laughs> great to hear bro and the last one here for five second frenzy i don't know if you said one curse word in this interview but it's supposed to be your favorite curse word i mean i like i, I like to say fuck a lot <laughs> like fuck fuck fucking a fuck all that fuck that shit yeah <laughs> <laughs> it works in I, many I definitely ways. I, I curse a lot. And it's funny because I, I feel I do do a good job of not cursing when I'm performing, mm. but like in my regular conversation, my wife all the time, like when I'm around her family is always like, can, can you watch how you talk, please? Because I don't even realize <laughs> how much I drop F-bombs. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, bro. Ryan Katz, it's been such a joy. It's an And honor. now after it's five seconds, I'll... Oh, yeah, I'm cutting you off. Now I'm taking control. I'm sorry. I also like the word douche, but I don't know if that's a curse word, but douche is one of my favorites. That works like too, that, bro. That, that person's a too. douche. What a douche. What a douche. I love it, bro. Uh, again, this was so fun. This was great to connect with you, bro. Uh, I feel like we're very similar in some ways. So uh, this was just so great for me to finally have the chance to have you on the show. So I just want to thank you very, very much. And just want to say, Perth, Western Australia is where I'm from. It's the most isolated city in the world. And all the way over here, all the way, you have a fan right here. So you reached to the furthest, I, most isolated city in the world to have a fan over here. My friend. I, I appreciate it. I appreciated the graffiti on the walls in Perth. And I had an amazing, amazing plant-based burger at some downstairs mall after I took a huge hike there. And this is, so NXT, I'm one of our Australian tours. I went hiking by myself. And of course, like there's the signs of what I like, all the dangers involved. And I never really realized the fact of the dangerous situations I put myself in when I go off 
on these long walks when I would go to these shows, because like if my phone died or if all of a sudden, you know, or if I trip, whatever it is, no one would know where I was at that point. But I took this like seven mile, eight mile hike and then had this amazing burger. Love Perth. Australia was my favorite tour we ever did in NXT. I got to go there twice and goes on my list of favorite places I wish to visit. Uh, yeah, the best. Absolutely the best. Excellent, bro. Well, I'm glad to hear all that. And again, thank you so much for being on the show here today. I appreciate you having me, man. You were freaking awesome. <laughs> thank you, Ryan. And thank you all out there for checking out the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WCWA Network. I'm your host, California, with my new friend, Ryan Katz. And we will see you down the road. Thank you. <laughs>